ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we're going to begin with another one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the name Al-Hadi you will have all heard for example people's names Abdul Hadi so we're going to talk about the name Al-Hadi Al-Hadi meaning the one who guides Al-Hadi, meaning the one who guides. And this name is mentioned in the Qur'an twice. This particular name is mentioned in the Qur'an twice. Once in Surah Al-Hajj, Ayah 54, وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَهَادِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِلَىٰ صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ That indeed Allah is the guider of those who believe to the straight path. Allah is the guide. He is the one who guides. الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Those who believe. إِلَىٰ صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ To the straight path. And also in Al-Furqan, Ayah 31, وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكَ هَادِيًا وَنَصِيرًا And sufficient or suffice with your Lord as your guide and the one who aids and assists and helps you. Allah is the one who guides you and Allah is the one who aids you and assists you. وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكَ هَادِيًا هَادِي وَنَصِيرًا فَالْهَادِي هُوَ الَّذِي يَهْدِي عِبَادَهُ وَيُرْشِدُهُمْ وَيَدُلُّهُمْ إِلَى مَا فِيهِ سَعَادَتُهُمْ فِي دُنْيَاهُمْ وَأُخْرَاهُمْ so Al-Hadi is the one who guides his servants and directs them and shows them to that which is for their goodness and happiness in this world and in the afterlife. Al-Hadi is the one who guides his servants shows them to their happiness, to that which will bring them happiness in this world and in the afterlife. وَهُوَ الَّذِي بِهِدَايَتِهِ اِهْتَدَى أَهْلُ وِلَايَتِهِ إِلَى طَاعَتِهِ وَرِضَاهُ And it is by his guidance that those who are upon his obedience were guided to the straight path 
they were guided to his worship and they were guided to his pleasure وَهُوَ الَّذِي بِهِدَايَتِهِ اِهْتَدَى الْحَيَوَانِ لِمَا يَصْلُحُهُ وَاتَّقَى مَا يَضُرُّهُ And even, even the animals are guided by the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, guiding the animals even to that which is of benefit and good to them, and keeping them away from that which is harmful for them. And we'll get to some more detail about that in a moment. So this is generally now what we are discussing, Al-Hadi, the one who guides his creation. So firstly then, if we look at some of the ayat of the Qur'an, we will see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us and guided us. So for example, الَّذِي خَلَقَ فَسَوَّى وَالَّذِي قَدَّرَ فَهَدَى The one who created the creation in due proportion and then he preordained the affairs and guided them. Then guided them. خَلَقَ فَسَوَّى created the creation in due proportion, and then, وَالَّذِي قَدَّرَ فَهَدَى And he is the one who preordained and guided them, guided the creation. And we'll explain in detail what types of guidance Allah gave us in a moment. فَهَدَاهَا الْهِدَايَةِ الْعَامَّةِ لِمَصَالِحِهَا Generally though, before we get to the categories, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided the creation to that which is in their benefit. وَجَعَلَهَا مُهَيَّأَةً لِمَا خُلِقَتْ لَهُ And Allah made us prepared and created us so that we may be guided and take on board that which is for benefit to us. وَهَدَى هِدَايَةَ الْبَيَانِ And also Allah guided us by sending us the clarification, sending us the books and the revelations, all of that guidance Allah gave us. If we then break it down into the different categories of guidance then, Allah is the one who guides His creation, what are the different types of guidance that Allah has given us then? And this is the key. What are the different types of guidance that Allah has given us? Firstly, the first type, Al-Hidayah Al-Ammah. The general guidance. The general guidance in our affairs. وَهِيَ هِدَايَةْ كُلِّ نَفْسٍ إِلَى مَصَالِحِ مَعَاشِهَا وَمَا يُقِيمُهَا And that is the general guidance to everything in creation, humans and animals, etc. To that which is of benefit and usefulness to them. 
including the animals like we said, including the birds. And an example of that is in the Qur'an when Allah said in Al-An'am 38 and 39, وَمَا مِن دَابَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا طَائِرٍ يَطِيرُ بِجَنَاحِهِ إِلَّا أُمَمٌ أَمْثَالُكُمْ ما فرطنا في الكتاب من شيء ثم إلى ربهم يحشرون والذين كذبوا بآياتنا صم وبكم في الظلمات من يشاء الله يضلله ومن يشاء يجعله على صراط مستقيم It mentions here that there is not an animal upon the land nor a bird that flies with its two wings, except that they are communities like you, like humans. And we have not neglected anything in the book with regards to all of that. And they will then, in the end, return to their Lord. And those who disbelieve in our ayat, they are deaf and dumb in darkness. Whomsoever Allah misguides, whomsoever Allah wishes, He misguides, and whomsoever He wishes, He makes him upon a sirat al-mustaqim. That is in reference to the animals and to the birds, that all of these are from the creations of Allah, and all of them have been guided to their paths. How? They have been guided to their paths, the animals, in the affairs that are of benefit to them. So when a new animal is born, it instantly knows how to suckle from its mother. It knows Allah has guided the animals in that way. Instantly it knows who its mother is and how to suckle from its mother. They give examples with the animals and there are so many in the animal world about the bees and how the bees they fly and migrate to different areas, to warmer areas and then come back to other areas. And they know where to go and how to pollinate and do all of those things. Allah has guided them to how all of this is for their benefit and for their good. The ants, it is mentioned an example regarding the ants. And how they will travel lengthy distances away from their home they will travel lengthy distances away in their lines over, down, right, left, until they find food, and then they will come all that distance back to where they were. Allah has guided them to be in this way, and to have this recognition. And there are so many examples with the animals, with the fish, of how they are able to do these things, uh, 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 and the Guidance Allah has given them in how to get the food, how to store their food. Animals are aware of how to store their food away, and then later they come back and eat it even with the fish. Even the fish, they store their food, it is known of some of their species. 
they store the food and then they come back later to the same spot and dig it out and they have food that they know they put there. Allah guides the animals in these ways that they have an understanding and recognition of how to do these things, how to live, how to survive. So all of these are from the examples of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guiding even the animals. So the first level of guidance is a general guidance. A general level of guidance for the humans, for the animals, a general level of guidance for us all. We understand how to do things and it applies even for the human for the humans, a baby is born and a baby understands and is able to suckle also from its mother upon birth. Allah has guided that newborn to understand how to do that. So these are a general level of guidance which occurs for all of the creation. Secondly, is a more specific type of guidance, the guidance regarding the truth of worship. The guidance regarding the worship that is upon us and the right that is upon us regarding Allah. And that type of guidance of course, came to us via the prophets and messengers, the books that were revealed, that type of guidance, Hidayatul Irshad, Hidayatul Irshad, Waddalala, as they call it, a guidance that directs you to the truth. Allah didn't just create us and put us on this earth without giving us guidance on how to worship Him. Allah didn't just put us on this earth without giving us guidance on how to do our acts of worship, on how to obey Him. Rather, Allah created us with the purpose of worshiping Him and gave us the guidance on how to do that, on how to worship Him. And that guidance came through the revelation, through the prophets and the messengers, teaching us on how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, teaching us what the reality of Tawheed is and bringing us back to that, and warning us from the affairs of shirk and keeping us away from that. All of that guidance clarifying the straight path from the misguided pathways, that is the second level of guidance that Allah has given us. And that of course applies not to the animals now, that applies to the human and the jinn. Animals are not required to be upon this type of worship and obedience. They are not required to implement the sharia. This level of guidance is to guide what is known as الثقلين. الثقلان, they are the jinn and the humans. Known as الثقلان or الثقلين, the ones who have been burdened with the responsibility. 
humans and jinn have been burdened with the responsibility of implementing the sharia animals have they been burdened with that no but the jinn and the humans we have been given that burden upon our shoulders to implement the sharia that's what it means athqalan the ones with the burden upon them so we the jinn and the humans we have been given that guidance clarifying to us what the straight path is and warning us from the deviated pathways just like in the very famous hadith where one of the companions says khatta lana rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam khattan mustaqima wa qala hadha sabilullah one of the companions said the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam drew for us a straight line in the sand and he said this is the path of allah the path to allah thumma khatta an yaminihi khututa wa an shimalihi khututa then he drew lines to the right hand side and lines to the left hand side wa qala ala kulli sabilin minha shaytanun yad'u ilayh that upon all of these pathways the deviated ones to the right and to the left there is a shaytan calling to them so the messenger clarified that straight path to us taraktu fikum shay'in ma intamassaktum bihi ma lan tadillu ba'di kitab allah wa sunnati the messenger said i have left two things behind as long as you cling on to them you will not go astray the book of allah and my sunnah so the straight path it has been clarified and the deviated pathways have been clarified so that is the second level of guidance we've been given a clarification of the straight path as opposed to the deviated pathways the third level of guidance and remember we're talking about the name of allah al hadi You hear people's names Abdul Hadi Al Hadi the one who guides the third level of guidance is the hidayatu tawfiq the guidance the inner guidance the inner guidance of the heart the inner enlightenment of the heart the inner guidance of the heart hidayatu tawfiq because the second level of guidance we've just been talking about clarifying the straight path just because the straight path has been clarified does it mean everybody then follows that path no and that's where this third level of guidance comes in hidayatu tawfiq the inner guidance the inner enlightenment of the hearts that the inner enlightenment comes from allah to a person the inner guidance of the heart comes from allah to a person you could go and give da'wah to a thousand people thousand non-muslims you could go and give them da'wah and talk to them about islam 
And out of the thousand, maybe only one accepts Islam afterwards. You have given all of that 1000 category number, two of the guidance, the general guidance clarifying the straight path to them, clarifying Islam to them, clarifying Tawheed to them, clarifying shirk and its evils, you've done all of that. You've given the second level of guidance to them all. But this third level of guidance, the inner guidance, maybe only one of them accepts, because he is the one that Allah gave the inner guidance to, and the others were not given it at that time. That third level, then the inner guidance, is not something we can give. The second level is something we can give. The second level we just spoke about before, clarifying the straight path, warning against the deviated pathways, we can all do that. The prophets and messengers did that. We can do that in giving da'wah. But this third level, the inner guidance thereafter, that is something out of our control. That is something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to an individual. So you could have thousands that you give da'wah to and maybe only one or two of them come and accept Islam. Even amongst the Muslims, you could be sitting with a hundred Sufis or people from the innovators and you're clarifying to them and explaining to them the sunnah and warning them from the bid'ah and giving them all the evidences. You're doing all of the level two of guidance to them. But from all of them, maybe only one of them at the end says, yes, I agree Salafiya is the correct way. And he leaves all his innovation. Only one of them gets the true inner enlightenment of guidance. So that third category there, the inner enlightenment, is not something we can give. That is something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah mentioned in the Qur'an, مَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدِ Whomsoever Allah guides, then He is the one who will be guided. Meaning whomsoever Allah gives this third level of guidance to the inner guidance, then He will be guided. As for us, then we can only give the second level of guidance. We are not able to give that third level of guidance. And that's why in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned regarding the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتِ there's an ayah in the Qur'an where it says, <coughs> You cannot guide who you love. إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتِ You cannot guide who you love. But there's another ayah where Allah tells the messenger, وَإِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي إِلَى that indeed you guide, you guide to the straight path. So in one ayah, the messenger is being told indeed, you guide to the straight path. But in the other ayah, he is being told, you cannot guide who you love. So how do we understand those two ayat? 
So when the ayah says, Indeed you guide to the straight path, that's talking about our level to guidance, clarifying to the people the straight path, indeed the messenger did that. And all the prophets and messengers before him did that. And we can do that, clarify the straight path to the people. But when it says in the Qur'an, وَإِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتْ إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتْ You cannot guide who you love. That is talking about level three of the guidance we've been mentioning here. That you cannot give the inner guidance to whom you will. You can give the second level of guidance, clarifying the truth. But who will accept that truth from you? Who will be given the inner true guidance and enlightenment to accept the truth? That is out of your hands. That is out of the hands of the prophets and messengers, including the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. That is guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It mentions... In the Quran, in Al-Baqarah 272, It is not upon you their guidance. It is not upon you their guidance. Meaning you are going to clarify the truth to them, but it's not upon you whether they are actually guided or not, because that depends upon them gaining the inner guidance, the tawfiq from Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala And that's why Allah says Laysa alayka hudahum It is not upon you to guide them But وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ But rather it is Allah who guides whom He wills Allah gives the inner enlightenment of guidance to whom He wills So there you have those two distinct categories One type is the general guidance of clarifying the truth, and the other type is the inner guidance, the inner enlightenment of the heart to accept that truth. One of the examples with this, the famous example of the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ in particular, Abu Talib The uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib We know that the parents of the Prophet ﷺ died when he was still a child His father died before he was even born He was not even born yet and his father died And then he was only how old when his mother died? Six Six years old. The Prophet ﷺ was only six and his mother died. And then who looked after him? His grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. His grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, looked after him from the age of six up to the age of Eight in the common narrations. There are differences about these ages and years in the books of Sirah, but often they mention it was a couple of years, and then he, the grandfather Abdul Muttalib, also 
passed away, and then from that age onwards it was Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet, who looked after him. So basically Abu Talib raised the Prophet from a young age in his own household. Abu Talib raised the Prophet, his nephew, in his own household from a young age, from the age of 8 or 10, very young. Raised him from that young age in his own household. And he looked after him, and guarded him, and treated him well like his own children. And even when the prophethood came to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ at the age of 40, so now he's been under the care of Abu Talib for how many decades? Three decades or more, 30 years plus under the guardianship or alongside his uncle Abu Talib. And in all of those years, Abu Talib has been with him and looking after him and took him on business and his uncle, uncle and nephew. But even when he became a prophet and Abu Talib was of course a non-Muslim, when the prophet Muhammad became a prophet, Abu Talib continued staying by his side. He didn't abandon him now. He didn't say to his nephew Muhammad, if you're going to go and become a Muslim, then go away, leave my house, nothing to do with you. He didn't say that. Even after Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam came with the religion of Islam, Abu Talib, even though he was a non-Muslim, stuck by him, stayed with him, carried on defending him and helping him. All the other non-Muslims, they were attacking the messenger and doing evil things to him. And Abu Talib, even though he wasn't Muslim, he was with those non-Muslims, he still used to defend Muhammad, his nephew, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, against those other non-Muslims. And the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as a consequence, desired and loved that Abu Talib should enter into Islam. Abu Talib was doing all of this help and defending the messenger, protecting him against the kuffar to the extent that Abu Talib himself was harmed. When the non-Muslims were harming the messenger, he was defending him in various situations. He faced the harm as well in some of the situations so Prophet Muhammad ﷺ wanted his uncle to become Muslim. So then it's mentioned in the hadith of Suhay, uh, Ibn al-Musayyib. In the hadith of Ibn al-Musayyib an abihi qal, Lama hadarat Aba Talib al-Wafa Jaahu Rasulullah sallallahu indahu Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah wa Abu Jahl. That when death came to Abu Talib, when the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ was on his deathbed, he was about to die. So then the Prophet went to visit him. He went to visit his uncle Abu Talib because Abu Talib was about to die. He was close to death on his deathbed as they say. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to go and try one last time to convince him to become Muslim so that he can be saved in the afterlife. 
and enter paradise and be saved from the hellfire. So the Prophet ﷺ went to visit uh, his uncle Abu Talib. When he got there, two of the non-Muslims, two of the mushrikun, were already there visiting Abu Talib as well. Two of the mushrikun, the non-Muslims, Abu Talib's friends, they were there visiting him as well. Abdullah ibn Abi Umayyah and Abu Jahl. They were both there with Abu Talib. So when the Prophet ﷺ got there, he said to his uncle, Ya Am, oh my uncle, Qul la ilaha illallah. Say, la ilaha illallah. Say that there is no God deserving of worship in truth except Allah. That is a statement that I will be able to give you some defense with, meaning that is a statement of entering into Islam, and that will give you the salvation, and that will give you the protection, and I will be able to testify for you on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, that you entered into Islam. So when he was saying this to Abu Talib, the two mushrikun who were there saw that Muhammad ﷺ is trying to convince him to become a Muslim. So they said to him, فَقَالَا لَهُ أَتَرْغَبُ عَن مِلَّةِ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ Are you turning away from the, the religion of Abdul Muttalib? They said to Abu Talib, are you going to basically listen to him and turn away, turn your back against the religion of Abdul Muttalib? What was the religion of Abdul Muttalib? Shirk. Worshipping the idols and worshipping the statues and worshipping the dead. They were not Muslim. Abdul Muttalib was Abu Talib's father. Abdul Muttalib, what was his real name? Shaybah or Shaybatul Hamd. Shaybah or Shaybatul Hamd. And why was he known as Abdul Muttalib? So there's a story about how when he came with his father, that they thought he was the servant or the slave. Abd in Arabic means the servant as well. They thought he was the servant of Al-Muttalib. So they began calling him Abdul Muttalib. But his name was Shaybatul Hamd or Shayba. So they said to him, are you going to leave the religion of your father? Are you going to turn your back on the religion that your father taught you? So when the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ heard them trying to convince him to stay as a mushrik, he again repeated to him. He again repeated to him, Ya Am, قُلْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Say, La ilaha illallah, my uncle. When the mushrikun heard him saying that again, they again said to him, Are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? So in the end, the last thing that Abu Talib said, 
the last testimony that he made, he said that he is ala millati Abdul Muttalib, that he is staying upon the religion of his father Abdul Muttalib, which was the religion of non-Muslims, the religion of shirk, of worshipping idols and statues and others besides Allah. So he didn't become a Muslim and he didn't accept Islam. No matter or despite all of what he did for the messenger, defended him and protected him and did everything for the messenger, yet in the end, he didn't actually become Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ wanted for him to become Muslim, tried to give him all of the da'wah and the guidance from the second level of the guidance, gave him that. But he was not given that inner guidance to accept and to become a Muslim. Because Allah knows the state of a person. And Allah knows the heart and the condition of a person. And whether that person is upright or not. And so it was known of him that he remains upon his disbelief. And so he remained upon his disbelief and did not become Muslim. So here is an example where the Prophet ﷺ gave the second level of guidance, wanted, desired that his uncle would become Muslim, tried with him. Yet it's because of the third level of guidance that you would then accept the truth and he was not upon that. So there is a difference between what guidance we can give, the general level, and the guidance that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, hidayatu tawfiq. There is a fourth level as well. A fourth level of the guidance. And that fourth level is guidance to paradise or to hell. Guidance to paradise or to hell. And this is because in the Qur'an it mentions that the people of paradise, they will say in Surah Al-A'raf, Ayah 43, Alhamdulillahilladhi hadana lihadha wa ma kunna linahtadiya lawla an hadana Allah. All praise is to Allah who guided us to this. And we would not have been guided had Allah not guided us. Allah guided them and kept them upon the path to paradise. And so they will say, All praise is to Allah, the one who guided us to this, to paradise. And was it not for the guidance of Allah, then we would not have been guided And in As-Safat 22 and 23 in particular, where it mentions about the wrongdoers, about the wrongdoers, فَهْدُوهُمْ إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْجَحِيمِ Guide them to the path to hellfire. So the people of paradise are guided to paradise. And they say, was it not for the guidance of Allah, we would not have been guided here to paradise. 
and the people of hellfire, فَهِدُوهُمْ إِلَىٰ صِرَاطِ الْجَحِيمِ Guide them to the path to Jahannam, to Jahim, to the hellfire. So this, the scholars have mentioned, is a fourth type of guidance, the guidance for the believers to paradise and the guidance of the disbelievers to hellfire. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned, وَلَمَّا كَانَ الْعَبْدُ فِي كُلِّ حَالٍ مُفْتَقِرًا إِلَىٰ هَذِهِ الْهِدَايَةِ فِي جَمِيعِ مَا يَأْتِيهِ وَيَذَرُ That a servant in all circumstances is in need of the guidance from Allah in everything that he does, مِنْ أُمُورٍ قَدْ أَتَاهَا عَلَىٰ غَيْرِ الْهِدَايَةِ فَهُوَ مُحْتَاجٌ إِلَى التَّوْبَةِ مِنْهَا وَأُمُورٌ هُدِيَ إِلَىٰ أَصْلِهَا دُونَ تَفَاصِيلِهَا أَوْ هُدِيَ إِلَيْهَا مِنْ وَجْهٍ دُونَ وَجْهٍ فَهُوَ مُحْتَاجٌ إِلَىٰ تَمَامِ الْهِدَايَةِ فِيهَا لِيَزْدَادَ هُدَىٰ وَأُمُورٌ هُوَ مُحْتَاجٌ إِلَىٰ أَنْ يَحْصُلَ لَهُ مِنَ الْهِدَايَةِ فِيهَا فِي الْمُسْتَقْبَلِ ثُمَّ مَا حَصَلَ لَهُ فِي الْمَاضِي so Ibn Taymiyyah mentions that a servant is in need of the guidance of Allah in all of his affairs. Perhaps a servant falls into some wrongdoing, so then he must return back to Allah and seek forgiveness and make tawbah. And sometimes maybe a person is guided to something partially, so then he needs the guidance from Allah in a full manner upon those affairs, and whatever the matter may be, and whatever the affair may be, then it is by the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that an individual does what he does, and so a person can never believe or think that he is self-sufficient, and he is the one who is making his own path, and doing whatever he does of his own skills, rather it is by the guidance of Allah, Subhanahu wa ta'ala That you are able to do what you do And your activities as they are By the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And that's why the scholars they mention The greatest blessing The greatest blessing upon us here now Is that Allah guided us to the truth That Allah guided us to the truth Then that is from the greatest of all of the blessings and there are so many who have not been guided to the truth. So this is the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Hadi. Al-Hadi. The one who guides. وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَهَادٍ أَوْ لَهَادِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِلَىٰ صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ that indeed Allah is the one who guides those who believe to the straight path. And وَكَفَى بِرَبِّكَ هَادِيًا وَنَصِيرًا And sufficient for you, your Lord, as a guide and as a helper. So that is the brief section regarding the name of Allah, Al-Hadi. Any questions on that or anything related up to there then?
I don't know if there is anything specific you could say that a non-believer can do or a state that he can be upon which would predispose him more to guidance. But generally speaking, a non-believer, a non-Muslim who is not upon Tawheed, whatever form of kufr he is upon, whatever form it may be, then it is permissible for Muslims to make dua for a non-Muslim to be guided, making dua for a non-Muslim to be guided, that is permissible. And then after that, you take whatever other means are available to perhaps aid that person into accepting Islam. And that is from the forms of da'wah. That it could be from your good character towards that person alone sometimes. It could be from the CDs, from the leaflets, from the affairs that you give him. There is a story about a woman who became a Muslim. She was a gardener. She was an expert gardener with flowers and all these different types of things. Expert gardener. And it is mentioned that when she read the Qur'an... And she read the descriptions of paradise. She said, absolutely, this must be the truth. Because she said, I've never seen descriptions of a garden like this. And she was an expert gardener, so she knew the affairs of gardening. And she said, I've never seen examples of this type of description of paradise, of how it will be in the gardens and the trees and the rivers and all the different types of uh, drinks and liquids of those rivers. She said, I've never seen a description of this nature. This must be the truth. And she accepted Islam upon that. So sometimes it can be different affairs for different people. But you can make dua for any non-Muslim to become Muslim. You want that goodness for them. And then you do what you're able to do in providing the correct and good environment for them to accept Islam. Sometimes at the beginning, it may not even be that you say anything. It may purely be from your actions, from your behavior. That you behave in a way which amazes them. It amazes them that this person, his character, what he does now, perhaps their own son or daughter, whoever it might be, that they are amazed at the characteristics of Islam. That could even be the opening door. I remember... 20 years ago here in the UK when we were at university in those days, and there were a few of us, we were living in a house, uh, rented accommodation from the landlords around the university areas in Manchester. And uh, the landlord, it was a, a, a couple in their 50s or something, they owned this house. Before we took it, myself and a few brothers, before we took it, they had some kuffar in there, just standard English people from different countries, Christians, whatever they were. And obviously, you know how it is at university, go out drinking, clubbing, all those things. They used to trash the house. They used to break the drawers of the kitchens, and this is broken, that's broken. After we moved in, they told us this. They said, we are shocked at how you keep the house. They used to come in and nothing is touched. Nothing is touched. It is as they gave it to us the first day. We never used to touch anything, do anything. Nobody ever comes home drunk breaking the drawers of the kitchen. Everything was perfect as they left it. Whenever they used to come to pick up the rent, they said to us once, we can't believe 
how everything is, you don't touch anything in the house. It's exactly perfect. We used to clean the house. We used to clean it every month. All of us, the brothers there, take turns, keep the house clean, everything, fulfill the rights of the landlords with their property, everything. And so they were amazed. We stayed there for three years, the full time of the university in the same house. After the second year, two years now we've been in the house, they were so amazed at how perfect we had kept the house. They said, we're going to get you new carpets and we'll get you some new other things. And I don't remember other uh, furnishings. They said, we'll do all of this. We'll get you new carpets. We'll get you this. We'll get you that. And for the third year, they gave us all the things. And this is only from our character. We never really used to sit with our landlords and speak and have dinner or anything. Just when they used to come to pick up the rent, speak to them for five or ten minutes, they used to see the house and they were amazed because all of the previous students they'd had coming in, alcohol on the floor, this on the floor, drugs maybe, this and that, all these things going on. They said they used to break the drawers of the kitchen. We used to have to keep replacing that. And then they saw us for two years, the Muslims and how they behave. Everything kept clean, the bathrooms kept clean. They said, we will buy new carpets, hundreds of pounds. We'll buy you new carpets, we'll do this, we'll do that. And they made it new for us in the third year. So sometimes at the beginning, even if you're not able to actually talk and sit and give da'wah to a person, a non-Muslim, it may be that the first door is from your actual behavior that they see. They see what a Muslim is and how a Muslim behaves and how a Muslim talks. That is from the means of guidance as well and from the means of da'wah. Before you even maybe have an opportunity to sit and to give them something to listen to or evidences or ayat or Quran or hadith, then that opening door of da'wah is one of the doors, no doubt. And that's why a Salafi, a Sunni, needs to be aware of all of these aspects of the religion. Your behavior, your etiquette is something important. It is not something to be sidelined. The etiquette of a Sunni, the etiquette, the behavior, the morals, the manners, these are important affairs that you demonstrate your salafiyyah upon yourself also. As Aisha said regarding the Prophet ﷺ, his mannerisms were that of the Qur'an. His etiquette, his manners, his morals were that of the Qur'an. In the other narration it mentions, أَثْقَلُ شَيْءٍ فِي الْمِيزَانِ الْخُلُقُ الْحَسَنِ The heaviest thing in the weighing scale on that day will be your good etiquettes and manners. So these are affairs of da'wah. If the Sunni community, all of them can indicate and show that goodness in their behavior, in their speech. They don't have the evil characteristics of swearing and abuse. And they don't have backbiting and namima and storytelling and all of these evil characteristics in them. Then a person looks at these people and sees that they are certainly upon a moral standing. They are certainly upon a good etiquette, a good mannerism. And many people, many people they enter into Islam... From that, when they see the reality of how the good Muslim behaves, and regrettably we know that there are people out there who do not behave in a good way, and that gives a bad impression of Islam. But then Ahlul Sunnah, they need to make sure that the good impression is given, not only to non-Muslims, but amongst ourselves also. The good behavior, the good characteristics, the goodness and love and brotherhood and unity between Ahlul Sunnah is something important also. Anything else?
In which statement? The one we quoted? So he mentioned, وَلَمَّا كَانَ الْعَبْدُ فِي كُلِّ حَالٍ مُفْتَقِرًا إِلَى هَذِي الْهِدَايَةِ فِي جَمِيعِ مَا يَأْتِيهِ وَيَذَرُهُ مِنْ أُمُورٍ قَدْ أَتَاهَا عَلَى غَيْرِ الْهِدَايَةِ فَوَمْحْتَاجٌ إِلَى التَّوْبَةِ مِنْهَا وَأُمُورٌ هُدِيَةٌ إِلَى أَصْلِهَا بِهَا وَأُمُورٌ هُدِيَةٌ إِلَى أَصْلِهَا دُونَ تَفَاصِيلِهَا That a person may be guided to an affair in the basis of the affair but doesn't know all the details of the affair. Sometimes, of course, we know you may have some knowledge about some issue, but you don't know all of the details about that issue yet. You may know about an affair, but you don't know all the details about that affair yet. So you're saying maybe sometimes a person may be guided to the basis of something, but he doesn't yet know all the details of that affair, or maybe he's guided to it from one angle and doesn't know about it from the other angles. And that knowledge comes stage by stage. Somebody sent me a video of uh, Yazid Khan. I don't listen to him, but he was, somebody asked him a question about the way he was dressed. So he said that the way I'm dressed is because I, I, I understand that the Prophet ﷺ dressed the way the people dressed. So I think he's talking a lot of bull, but can you please clarify this? Dress code, Islamically, there is no sunnah that you have to wear a particular type of dress, that it has to be the thobe or it has to be any other specific type of dress. There are guidelines in the religion about the types of clothes that you have to wear. So for the men... We know that the guidelines highlight Islamically, there are, there are sections in the books of hadith about clothing. Clothing and what you can, what you cannot wear. So we know the men cannot wear anything below their ankles, for example. We know that they cannot wear the color red, pure red. If there are other patterns and colors, okay. But pure red, we know that they cannot, men or women, wear anything which is tight any tight garments that show the shape of your body. So there are certain rules about the types of clothes that a person can wear. There are certain rules about the clothes a person can wear. If a person lives in a particular society and they wear a certain type of clothes and those clothes do not go against the guidelines of the Sharia, then it is actually good to wear those types of clothes. What I mean is, like for example in the subcontinent. In the subcontinent, this type of Arab style thobe isn't the normal clothing. The normal is the one that is cut with the sides. Everybody knows the Pakistani Indian type of clothing. So when you're there, it's good that you wear that type of clothing. No problem with that. It fulfills fulfills the guidelines of the sunnah. You may go to places like Kazakhstan and those areas and they wear the very large baggy kinds of trousers with the tight top but uh, on the waist, but then baggy around the legs, different to what you see around here. So if you're there and you're living amongst them, wear that. You may be in Japan or, or those kinds of areas where they have specific types of garments, as long as they are loose and they are open and they're not uh, below the ankles and they're fulfilling the guidelines, you can wear those clothes. 
in the West, here the normal clothing is trousers and shirts, a top and a bottom. If those clothes fulfilled the guidelines of being loose, etc., then they could be worn. But the reality is, these types of garments rarely fit the guidelines. Rarely are you going to get any trousers being sold anywhere that are loose. Trousers are not designed to be loose. They're designed to fit on your legs, even if they are slightly loose as soon as you go into rukur. Then it is tight upon you. And everybody will see the shape from behind when you go into rukur in a pair of trousers. They are not loose enough. The shirt as well, the nature of the shirt when you go into rukur, the lower back becomes exposed. So these kinds of garments, usual and typical ones, they're not suitable usually because they don't fully fit the guidelines. You're going to have them very tight, etc. So if, if, you can get them loose. Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqih, he said, about the brothers in France, they were asking him this. He said, look, if you can get them loose, very loose kinds of trousers, and loose kinds of shirts, then it's okay. If they're loose, then okay. But we know the majority of what people wear, they're not loose. They are not loose garments. And having these suits on, and ties on ties, there's another issue about that specifically. And some of the scholars prohibit wearing ties, but that's another discussion. Blazers and suits and these kinds of things, they're always designed to be tight on your body. There's no such thing as a loose blazer. The blazer goes tight on your body, you close the buttons, it's fully shaped to your body, the shirts. And these days, especially the way they design the clothes, there's no such thing as loose shirts or loose trousers at all. 20 years ago, maybe a little bit. Nowadays, the trousers and shirts for the men are skin tight. So you have to look at the guidelines of the sharia. If in the country you're in, the guidelines are met, and those clothes are not from the clothes of the kuffar, they're not the uh, clothes that resemble uh, the kinds of clothes they would go wearing when they go clubbing and those kinds of things. You wouldn't wear clothes that resemble them in that way. But generally, trousers, shirts, these are worn worldwide now. If they were loose, which is almost impossible, but if they were really properly loose, it would be allowed. But most of the time, like we say, they are not. So uh, it is better to wear the garments that cover you properly, and they are loose, and they cover your aura, they cover your shape. That's what is required, especially in the prayer. It is not suitable to pray in trousers and shirts, because they are tight, and then your shirts go up, and the lower backs become exposed. Particularly in the prayer, it is not suitable and generally outside, if they are to be worn or need to be worn, then they should be as loose as you can possibly get them. Oh. There is the mentioning of Abu Talib that he will get the lowest level of the punishment in the hellfire because of the intercession of the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and there are different punishments that are mentioned in the hellfire different types of punishments for different types of actions that were committed there are narrations about the one who does x y and z then this is the punishment that will be in the hellfire the hadith when the messenger saw the people in the hellfire as well and the different punishments they were getting the mouth being ripped open 
of the one who used to lie, for example, and the th- uh, stones being thrown upon others, and they're climbing out of a river of blood. All of these things are mentioned, different types of punishments for different actions that they may have done. But in terms of levels, we know that the paradise is levels that goes up, and we know that the hellfire is pits that go down. The paradise is levels, one level higher than the next level, up and up and up. And hellfire is pits, one pit lower than the next pit. And the munafiqoon are in the lowest pit. The hypocrites are in the lowest pits of the hellfire. So there are pits and different levels of depth into that hellfire and different specific uh, punishments for the specific actions that may have been done. There is some evidence about those kinds of things generally. Last question if there is, otherwise we'll conclude there. Last one then. So, a person may say, Allah has decreed everything. And Allah knows the past, present and future. Allah already knows whether you're going to be in paradise or hell. So if Allah knows all of that already and has decreed all of that already, then as the narration says, female amal, then what are we doing our actions for? If everything is already written for us, Everything is already decreed about our lives and Allah knows everything we're going to do in our lives and whether we're going to end up as righteous or non-righteous and whether paradise or hell. If all of that is known for us already, then why are we even making an effort? So then in that case, the narration highlights, that everyone, it will be made easy for him what he was created for. Basically, to understand this in a nutshell, it is the ayah, وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ You do not will except that Allah, the Lord of all that exists, wills first. Allah knows the choices we're going to make. Allah's given us an ability to make choice. Because Allah has given us a will, and Allah has given us ability. Because they say, if you want to do something, you need to have two things. An intention and ability. If you want to do something, you need two things. Intention and ability. So if I want to pick up the book, firstly, what, what needs to happen for me to pick up the book? What's the first thing that needs to happen for me to pick up the book? I need to decide that I want to pick up the book. If I never decide to pick up the book, then it's just going to stay there for the rest of the lesson. I need to make an intention, I want to pick up the book. That's the first thing. Secondly, if I've made that intention, I need to have the ability to actually be able to do it. So with the intention and the ability, I can then do that action. Allah has given us both of those. Allah has given us the will, the ability to make an intention to do something, 
and the ability to carry out that action. That is the meaning of having free will. Allah has given you the intention, the choice to do things, and the ability to do it. A person now when it comes to the time of the prayer, and he knows he needs to pray, he can now decide, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to make wudu, and then he can go and pray. Or he can decide, I'm not going to do it. The person makes that decision in his head or not? Makes it. He then gets up and makes wudu and goes and prays or not? He does it, or he doesn't do it. A person with alcohol, a bottle of alcohol there, to drink that, he is going to make the intention he wants to drink it. Then he is going to use his ability to pick it up and drink it. Allah's given you that. And because you've been given that, you are then able to make choice. Shall I choose to do this or that? Shall I choose to pick up this book? Or shall I choose to pick up that one? Allah's given you that will. But the point is, even though you've been given that free will in that way, Allah already knows the choices you're going to make. So if I now decide I'm going to pick up this book, I've chosen to do that. I could have chosen to pick up this one. But I chose to pick up this one. So now Allah already knows I was going to choose to pick up this one. The choices you make, you are making them at the time. But they are already known to Allah what you are going to choose. And if Allah already knows the choices you're going to make, that's why it is already known whether you will be in paradise or hell. But you cannot say, well, what's the point then? How do I understand this if Allah has decreed it all? Right now, you are given the free will to do your actions. If you were not given the free will to do the actions, then there would be oppression in putting people into hellfire. And there would be no um, reward in putting people in paradise. If you had nothing to do with it, you weren't making the choice. So the choice is there. You make the choice on whether you do right or wrong. But Allah already knows the choices you're going to make. And Allah has decreed those choices. But that doesn't mean that Allah has decreed those choices that you are compelled. At the moment of making the choice, you are making the choice. They give the example, if a person misses the prayer, and then afterwards he says, well, it was the decree of Allah. Was it the decree of Allah he was going to miss the prayer? Yes, it was. If it wasn't in the decree, he wouldn't have missed the prayer. But at the time of the prayer, was it him sitting there thinking, oh, shall I get up or I can't be bothered? Who decided at the time of the prayer he couldn't be bothered to get up and didn't pray? Who actively knew they were making that decision at the time? That person himself. He knew what he was doing. Time's going by, time's going by, time's going by. He knows what he's doing. He's making the choice to miss the prayer. It was decreed, but he at that moment was making the choice on what he's doing. That's why you can't say, well, if Allah's decreed it, oh, what choice have I got? You have got the choice at the moment. In the moment of your actions, you are making the choice. But Allah knows what choices you're going to make. So there is no compulsion. 
The people of Bid'ah, they believe there's compulsion. Allah's decreed what's going to happen, that's it, we're compelled to do it. They say in fact, it is like a feather in the wind. A feather in the wind will blow which way? Whichever way the wind blows it, they say that's what we're like. Allah's decreed everything for us, we just blow whichever way the decree goes. Incorrect. If that was the case, then what's the point of hellfire and paradise? The point of hellfire and paradise is that this is a test. And you are making your choices to do good or to do bad. But it's just that Allah in His infinite knowledge already knows what choices you're going to make in the future. Do you know yet? You don't. Which is why throughout your life, at every opportunity, you have to just keep making sure you make the best and correct choice and the worship of Allah every time. You don't know what the end result is. You don't. It's like in this world, you know, simple, simplistic example. A teacher says, I know already what grade you're going to get in your exam. I know already. I know what you're going to get. Does that mean you're going to think, okay, well, if he already knows, I bet he's going to fail me, forget it, what's the point then? You don't know, has the teacher told you what grade he's actually going to give you? He's told you, I, I know about you, I know exactly what you're going to get. But you're going to still carry on, trying your best to get the pass. Doesn't mean when the teacher tells you, I know what you're going to get, he means you're going to fail. You don't know that. You don't know what the end result is. So because you don't know that, all you can do is continue striving to achieve the goodness and the uh, pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's in brief. We were actually, if you remember before COVID, where before the lessons cancelled, we were doing the six pillars of Iman, we were exactly coming to that section. There's about six or seven lectures it takes to explain all of that in a bit more detail properly. Maybe after a few more lectures on this, we'll come back to that and do the section about that topic, especially. It takes six or seven lectures properly to explain all of it so that a person doesn't get confused. If everything's decreed, then is everything just decreed what I'm going to do? I've got no choice. It isn't like that. You have choice. So we'll have to leave it to that. Then the prayer is in. We'll carry on in a couple of weeks, inshallah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.